Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Please open your Bibles to Matthew 13. We'll be looking at verses 44 and 45. Matthew 13, as we have said, have seven parables of the kingdom. Seven parables where Jesus starts by saying, the kingdom of God is like, or what shall I call the kingdom of God like. And in 44 and 45, two parables that have the same basic point, and so we will take them together, even though when you're counting the seven kingdom parables, these are counted separately. He starts both 44 and 45 saying, the kingdom of heaven is like, and again the kingdom of heaven is like. So these are kingdom parables. So the first parable, very simply, a man is doing whatever he's doing, and he notices a treasure in a field. And it's such a great treasure, he hides it again, and then he goes and sells all that he can and buys the field and the treasure in it, and voila, he's a very rich man at this point. So comments about this parable. This parable is historically accurate, if we'll say, back in Jesus' time, back when you had the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Greeks, then the Romans, conquering that portion of the world. People, there wasn't an opportunity for banks or a financial system to come into being. Whatever the financial system of the conquering country was, the Jewish people would follow. And so when the Romans were in power during the time of Jesus, they had coins with the Roman emperor's picture on it, and that was used, that was accepted by markets and stuff in exchange for food. And so the uh, Jews participated in that. If you were to speak to a Jew during the time of Jesus and you said, empty your pockets, you would find three different kinds of coins. You would find Roman coins for using in public. You would find Israel's own coins that were used for uh, things buying from Jewish markets and things like that. And then you would find temple coins because the priests got into the habit of saying, well, uh, money, dirty lucre, that money is so bad and so evil that we need to have our own coin. And so an average person would have three types of coins from three types of money systems. And so if a person had a pile of gold or some pearls or diamonds or whatever, there was no place to put it for safekeeping. Because if you put it in a Roman bank, they might just take it because they were the conquering person. Jews at the time of Jesus, there were not banks. If there were, they were usually loan sharks. 
And you might not get your money back. They might break your legs instead of getting your money back. And so people would bury it. And Josephus, who was a Roman, he's a Jewish historian hired by the Romans during the time of Jesus, actually used the phrase that greater Jerusalem was a veritable treasure trove of buried treasure because people would bury treasure and then they might be drafted into the Roman army and they might be killed and there's no record of this buried treasure back with the Assyrians, back when Joshua took the promised land. There were no banks way back then, and so people would bury their value, and then the Assyrians came in and took away 250,000 Jewish people. Well, if those 250,000 people had buried some treasure, there's treasure all over Canaan at this point that nobody knows about, that nobody can remember. There were no wills, there were no trusts, there were no transferring of wealth from generation to generation. A father had to live long enough to tell his sons where the stuff was buried. And if people got killed, there was no way to know. And so there was, literally, treasure all over the Middle East that had been buried by various people, not only Jews, but Assyrians and Babylonians, and Greeks and Romans would also do that. That was the banking system. If I had great wealth, if I had 20 pounds of gold, I couldn't entrust it to anybody, I'd go to my cornfield and bury it somewhere, and then if I needed a little gold, I'd sneak out in the middle of the night and make a withdrawal from my hole in the ground, but then if I was forced to move away or if I was killed, there's the treasure and nobody knows about it. So for the person to find a was not unheard of. We don't know how commonly people found treasure in the time of Jesus, but it was not unheard of. And so when Jesus tells this, people go, oh yeah, I had an uncle once who found treasure in a field. They, they would have a memory of this, but you say, well, aha, well, doesn't the treasure belong to the person who owns the field? You might think that, but Jewish law, because they understood how this was going, Jewish law had a finder's keeper's law in it. If I find a treasure and it's in somebody else's land and they didn't bury it, but it's long past buried, then it's mine. But then I have to gain the land, I have to buy the land before I can take the treasure because the land, the treasure kind of belongs to the land. The Jewish law is kind of convoluted in this, but it is a finder's keepers sort of law. Now, what you might think, maybe this treasure belonged to the owner of the land. Well, if this treasure belonged to the owner of the land, then he wouldn't sell the land or he would go and remove the treasure before the guy bought the land. So it would have been a sign to the person buying the land that he's not getting the treasure and he could pull out of the deal. And so he would buy the land, he would then uncover the treasure, and he would be a very rich man. The second parable is about a pearl merchant. The word for merchant in uh, Greek is a reseller, is a wholesaler. This person 
by profession, would go and buy things low, go to another land or another city and sell them high. And he, that's how he would make his money, is by buying things and then selling them. And apparently it says, a merchant in search of fine pearls. He was a pearl merchant. Now pearls, and he finds one. So the parable is he finds a great one, a wonderful pearl, you know, golf ball sized pearl or something like that. And he goes and sells everything he has, including all the pearls he has, to buy that one pearl. Okay, and that is the parable. And so when you look at how pearls were valued and how pearls were gained in the Middle East, pearls were made the same way they are today. A piece of sand gets into an oyster and an oyster covers it and covers it and covers it. You then open the oyster and you have a pearl. Pearls were the most valuable precious stone in the Middle East in the time of Jesus. If you read about Roman emperors, Roman emperors, when they really wanted to show their wealth, they would cover themselves in pearls. They wouldn't cover themselves in gold. Diamonds were way too hard to get in the time of Jesus. So if you had one, yeah, but there's no real value to it because nobody wanted a diamond. While Pearls were enough available because they were, you know, you just find oysters in the Mediterranean Sea and you open it up and there's a pearl. Pearls were valuable because had no equipment. They had no oxygen tanks. They just had to hold their breath. They would sometimes tie a rope around their ankle. The owner of the rig would throw the person in the sea and they would have a bag and they would bring up oysters. Now, people are unscrupulous today. People were unscrupulous back then. There were predatory animals in the Mediterranean Sea, but if there was a great find, he might pull the person up by their ankles, hit him in the head, take the pearls, and leave, not having to pay the diver. And so there was a danger associated with pearls. If you had a big old pearl, when people saw it, they would not understand, they would understand the rarity of it, but they would also understand there was danger in getting this, and that made it even more valuable. And so this person who is a buyer and seller of pearls, he sees one that is fantastic, that is marvelous, and he sells all that he has to get it so that he will become a very wealthy and rich man. And so if you look at these parables, these parables are about the kingdom. And we can get some thoughts from these parables that need to be supported by the rest of the Bible. So these are not just in isolation. And the first thing we see is that when Jesus is talking about this, he is talking about salvation. You can read any commentary, any book about these parables. Everybody says this is about salvation. That the person sees the kingdom of God, sees, hears the gospel. Somehow salvation is offered to them. And they value it so much they're willing to sell everything they have to get it. 
So these are salvation parts of the kingdom. When Jesus talks about the kingdom, he talks about many aspects. This is how you get into the kingdom. This is how you get saved and get into the kingdom. And the first thing we see in this is salvation is individual. You have a guy wandering through fields and you have a merchant. You have individuals. There is no team sport. The pearl merchant does not go get investors. It is individual. It is one-on-one. -on -one. It is me and God. And today it is the same way. You talk about people say, oh, well, my, I've talked to people who say, oh, yeah, my, my parents were Christian. Well, there's no inheritance in Christianity. There's no group in Christianity. There are people who have said, uh, well, America is a Christian nation, therefore everybody in it is a Christian. No, God does not save countries. God does not save cities. God does not save towns as a group. His Spirit may move through San Lorenzo, and a lot of people may be saved, and we would call that a revival if a lot of people are saved in an area. But those are still individuals being saved. Those are still individuals relating to God. God saves individuals. When John saw the multitude in heaven, it was uncountable, the number of saved people. God saved each one of those individually, one at a time. God may save a lot of people, but he saves them one at a time. The second thing that this shows us is salvation is priceless. Salvation has no equivalent in our monetary system. Now, if you look at this and you want to get the wrong view, these people are not buying their salvation. Uh, some people may say, well, they're selling all they have so they can get a lot of money so that they can buy their salvation. They are not buying their salvation. You cannot buy your salvation. And for that, we have to look at the whole rest of the Bible we are saved by faith, through grace. It is the gift of God. That is how we are saved. We are not saved by doing great things for God. You can't do anything that would impress God. You can't give enough that you would impress God or that God would even notice. What God has done for us through Christ is so marvelous, so fantastic, that there's no way we can do anything for it, to get it. And so, what is this saying? What is it saying when it's talking about giving money and things of this nature? If you have a person, a person is going through life, and they are offered salvation, and they believe in Jesus Christ, and they accept Jesus Christ, we would say they are now saved, they are Christian, the Bible's teaching is they need to repent of their old life. Their life goes in a new direction. Their thinking changes. Their behavior changes. They begin to do things with a Christ-centered and less of a self-centered. And so, in many ways, they are getting rid of all that they have emotionally, sinfully, 
all their practices so that they can be a part of the Christian family, so they can be a part of Christ. Everything that they had before is deleted or changed. It's repented of so that they can become followers of Christ without baggage. Now, some people are more successful than others with this. Some people come, we will say, they enter the kingdom slowly. They want to understand who Christ is, but they also want their old life. While other people that I've talked to and that have been on TV or whatever have had more radical changes uh, heavily addicted to drugs or something, and then in an instant, God changes them and pulls them out of that. How God saves people, how much the baggage holds on is individual for every person. But the idea is to enter the kingdom of God, we must get rid of everything that we were, everything that we were before that, and give it all for Christ. Paul talked about that, how he considers everything he has as a loss for Christ. The third thing we can look at is that salvation is hidden, that there's not a kiosk, there isn't a billboard, there isn't uh, a person offering it to these people. These people find it. And days before they found it, you might ask them, well, is it obvious what you're looking for? The treasure guy would say, I'm not looking for anything. The pearl guy would say, well, I've been looking for this for decades. It's not obvious. It is hidden. But when it is seen, when it is experienced, it becomes the most obvious and true thing in your life that it is something that we can grab a hold onto. For me, the truth about Jesus Christ is as true as the sun's going to come up tomorrow. It's going to go down tonight. The functioning of the world that we consider just this is how things happen is how obvious Christ is to me, is how obvious the truth of Christ is to me. But before I was saved... It's possible that I was saved at a younger age, but to, to understand that it was, you know, not knowable, for example. There are people who were saved in their 40s or 50s or 60s that prior to that, they would say, I had no idea about Jesus Christ. Then their eyes were open and they saw it. We can also see from these two parables that people are saved... In these parables, at least, two different ways. The first one, he's not looking. He's just going through his life. He's going through his day. Perhaps he's farming and he finds the treasure. Perhaps he's just cutting across the field and he kicks a rock and he finds the treasure. He's not looking for it. God is looking for him, but he's not looking for God. People in the Bible that may have, uh, that looks like this is Paul. Paul was on his way to kill Christians. And then Jesus knocks him down and says, believe in me. And at that point, Paul, who is not looking for Jesus, 
becomes a believer in Jesus. The Ethiopian, no, the woman at the well, the woman at the well just wanted a drink of water. She wanted to be left alone and she wanted a drink of water. And Jesus comes and says, he's the Messiah and changes her life at that point. She was not looking for Christ. Christ was looking for her. People can see tracks. They can hear a sermon. If you go on YouTube, if you go on Twitter, Christians are posting all the time the gospel message. Sermons are all over the internet. And if a person just starts clicking on things, it's possible they'll hit a sermon. And then that sermon will play and then God will speak to their heart, not looking for Christ but finding Christ in what they find. There's, you can hear over here uh, people. I, I remember talking to a person many years ago who said they were at a Starbucks and they were just reading a book and the people next to them were talking about what happened at church. And even though they weren't looking for Christ, it was the most fascinating thing they ever heard and they were able to talk to the people and accept Christ. And so there are people who could care less who God is, but God cares and God is trying to get you. Charles Spurgeon, the British preacher, he was raised in a Christian home, but he only went to church because his parents made him. He was not immoral. He was not a criminal, as it were. He just didn't care. He wanted what he wanted, and the church didn't seem to be doing it. One day, he was caught outside in the British rain, and he was trying to get home, but it was just pouring so hard he needed to find a place to duck into. Uh, and he was 10 years old, no, he was 15 years old at this time. And he writes, when I could go no further, I turned down a court, and came to a little primitive Methodist church. The preacher who was to have conducted the service never got there because he was held up by the weather. And quickly, one of the officers had to be brought forward to conduct the service with the congregation of 15 people. The man was really stupid, Spurgeon writes. His text was, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And he just kept repeating it because he had nothing else to say. But something about Spurgeon caught the man's eye and he said, young man, you look very miserable and miserable in life and miserable in death you will be if you don't obey my text. He then shouted, young man, look to Jesus, look, look, look. And I looked, says Spurgeon, and then there was a, the cloud was gone, darkness rolled away, his eyes were open, and he got saved. And without looking for Jesus, he thought Christianity was just something you do. Without looking for Jesus, he wandered into a Methodist church, he gets saved, and he became what we call the Prince of Preachers, one of the greatest preachers of the 1800s. The second parable about a guy who's looking for it. He's a trader, a merchant of pearls. He's looking for religious answers. He's looking for answers of truth. 
And so he might, and people today might try various religious practices. Buddhism is very popular today for people looking for religious answers that is being offered as a, a way to find peace and a way to find calmness. They may try various philosophies. They may try various experiences that the world offers, experiences that the world says in it is an answer, but they're looking. And if you were to talk to that person, they would say, they're searching for truth, but they haven't found God yet. In the Bible, you have people like Cornelius. Cornelius is in the book of Acts. Cornelius, it says, was a godly Gentile, but he'd never been taught anything. He seemed to have scrolls of the Bible, but he'd never been taught anything just from reading that because the Gentiles didn't have a rabbi or a priest to teach him. And so as he's reading the Bible, he gets a dream, he gets a vision telling him to go send for Peter. And so he sends his servants to go get Peter. And Peter comes and Peter explains to this person who was searching for God but didn't know how to do it, explains to Cornelius how to be saved. And Cornelius and his whole household is saved. You're going to see Cornelius in heaven. And you can talk to him about these stories. The Ethiopian eunuch was reading Psalm, no, Isaiah 53 in his chariot, but had no idea what he was reading. And then Philip came alongside and was invited into the chariot and explained the Ethiopian eunuch was searching but didn't know how, didn't know what it meant. And God sent Philip to talk to him. And Philip said, so you need to be baptized. And the Ethiopian eunuch said, hey, there's water. So he got baptized and he was saved. And you will see the Ethiopian eunuch in heaven. And you can talk to him about this story. There are people who are searching today and God is sending answers. There are people who aren't even looking and God is still after them. The fifth thing that this shows us is that salvation is a transaction. Salvation requires God to do something and requires us to do something. Now what we do has nothing to do with money, has nothing to do with righteousness, has nothing to do with good works, can't impress God. God makes the offer. And it's a genuine, today, it is a genuine, honest, true offer. And God is making it to all sorts of people today. And if we believe in Christ by faith, we believe that what Christ did and said is true, historically accurate, and that we believe that the blood He has, that He shed, will cover my sins. And if I believe that, if I give myself to Christ with that belief, then I am saved by grace. And it is called a covenant, which we would call in legal terms a contract today. Contract. Party A has to do something. Party B has to do something. God does all the heavy lifting in this contract. He does everything, so we only have to believe. But we have to believe. We have to believe. 
we have to understand, we have to accept what Christ has done, then we are saved by grace. It is a transaction, but it doesn't involve buying anything, it doesn't involve earning anything. And when Paul in the book of Romans talks about what happens in heaven, it's like God has this big ledger sheet. And before you're saved, you're in the lost column. You're in the condemned column. And when you accept Jesus Christ by faith, God by grace will move you into the saved column. And God doesn't need to do that to keep track. He can remember all this stuff. But he, it's Paul's way of understanding that there is a legal transaction going on. And when you talk about God's losing salvation, when you talk about us getting out of these sorts of things, of saying, well, I don't believe anymore, the idea that God will not kick you out of the ledger. Once you're moved into the saved column, you are there forever and ever and ever. But God is making an offer, and we must accept it. And people today are saying, well, God's doing this or that or this or that, and we can put all sorts of things on God. But the truth is, God is making an offer to every human being on this planet. And the offer is eternal life through Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God will not be fully revealed until Jesus Christ comes again and lands on the Mount of Olives, and He will institute the kingdom of God in the millennial kingdom. Until then, the kingdom of God is hidden and it's secret and we get it out there by being the mouthpieces of God's offer. When we share the gospel, when we share our testimony, we are telling people that God is making an offer for us to accept and gain eternal life. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, I thank you that we have these parables to explain what the kingdom of God is like and that as we go from this place today that we may understand that you are still in charge, that you are making an offer and that we just have to be the ones to tell people of the offer, we just have to be the ones to tell people what you say so that they can understand, so that they can be part of the kingdom too. Lord, we praise you for this and ask your blessing on the remainder of the day. We ask all this through the blood of Christ. Amen.